The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot 2.0 goes well with both red and white and is perfect with the workout of your choice. Our hosts are Aaron Berlin, a former Kansas Jayhawk who believes the Orlando Magic will win the championship. Eventually. (laughs) His partner is Otto Strong, a man who has covered the NBA since before Dennis Rodman got his first tattoo. Fellas? Thanks so much, Darlene. NBA basketball officially returns this week as seeding games will get underway Thursday. But before we get to that, coming up on today's show, Derek Bodner of The Athletic will join us. He'll tell us what the Sixers should do to still be a trendy pick to win the East. We'll talk some Tom Thibodeau to the Knicks as well as Lou Williams. Just wanted some wings. But before we get to that, I welcome in my co-host this week. His name is Bruce Bernstein, who is going to do a fantastic job filling in for our guy Otto Bruce how's it going it's going great and uh Otto getting some uh, much deserved time off this week so I will do my very very best to fill his size 14 Converse Chuck Taylor canvas high tops is Otto still a Chuck Taylor guy I kind of figured he'd be more like a Kobe or a Braun 14 type of guy he's still a Chuck guy I don't know. I mean, because of the whole, you know, new school, old school dynamic between you two guys on this show, I just always associate old school with the canvas converse all-star chucks, which are actually the first sneakers that I ever bought with my own money about a thousand years ago. (laughs) So here's a fun fact for you, Bruce, and I think this is going to kill you a little bit inside. I have never owned a pair of Chuck Taylors on any level. The low tops, the high tops, never owned any. But, you know, our guy Otto always talks about those celebrity pickup basketball games that he's in. I could see him rocking some chucks in those. I'd be about it. I'd watch it. Well, you know, Otto's got the big hops, you know. He's a big man, and he he gets up there above the rim. So, I don't know. I mean, for guys like myself, let's say, who are, you know, gravity-bound and could barely jump over a telephone book, we can ha- the chucks can handle the torque when we come down. <laughs> With Otto, I think he might need something, you know, more in the Zion Williamson school of uh, durability. (laughs) That's awesome. I'll I'll tell you what, though. If I'm playing ball, I need the absolute best shoes that I possibly can just to give me any kind of edge. Because when you're 5'5", you know, you're going to struggle out there on the blacktop. But anyway, this is a story that I think Otto would maybe be wringing his hands in frustration once he heard. But the New York Knicks do have a new head coach. They signed Tom Thibodeau to a five-year deal. Bruce, let's start with your initial reaction to this, because I have a lot of thoughts on how this is going to work out for the Knicks. And full disclosure, I don't think it's going to turn out well. Not much has turned out well for the Knicks in the past, oh, I don't know, 10 years or so. Does anything ever turn out well for the Knicks these days? I think they made the finals back in 1999. I believe Jeff Van Gundy was the coach back then. But uh, if Rick Pitino were here right now, he'd probably say something like, Jeff Van Gundy's not walking through that door. No, however, you... however, Tibbs is, okay, and Tibbs, as we know from experience, is a very hard-driving guy. He's a real, you know, 
kind of an old school hard ass, I guess, for lack of a better term, known for making a real positive impression in his first year with a team. Uh, and then uh, after that, mm, doesn't always continue to go up, up, up. It kind of goes up and down a little bit, usually not ending well. What are you, what's your thoughts, Aaron? So, so this tends to happen with hirings across all professional sports, right? Like you have one coach who is very player friendly, all about kind of fostering relationships and building it from the ground up. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the hard ass coach who just wants to come in, get disciplined and make sure that his team follows a certain structure. And that is certainly where Tom Thibodeau lies. The problem is, is when you go from one extreme to the next, it never works out. You have to find that happy medium. And I think if there's one thing that we learned with Tom Thibodeau, whether it was during his time with the Bulls or during his really rough time with the Timberwolves, is that young players in the NBA do not necessarily resonate with his teaching style. And I thought that we learned that tremendously with the experiment in Minnesota. I mean, you look at the thought of what was going to happen in Minnesota. Not only did you have Andrew Wiggins, who he was brought in to maybe light a fire under his ass, if that's a better way to phrase it, or just to kind of get him to the next level where his athleticism could take him, and it never happened. You saw it with Carl Anthony Towns, and then you also brought in Jimmy Butler on an experiment there. It never came to fruition, 97 and 107 during his time with them. And I think it's going to be a similar thing with the Knicks. Now, granted, with the Knicks, there's not a star player on that team. And so this is truly going to be his roster. And so now that the Knicks have their coach, they have their guy, if he's going to have say in how this roster is constructed, that's going to be one thing. But he's also going to have to find players that fit with his style. And that was something that he could not do in Minnesota. When he was in Minnesota, he was also the president of basketball operations in addition to the coach. And while his coaching record, as you pointed out, was 10 games under 500, he also didn't do such a great job as the president of basketball operations. He was It was on his watch that Andrew Wiggins signed a five-year deal for $148 million, which was way, way, way overpaying for what his record was. He mismanaged the whole Jimmy Butler situation there and that Butler wanted out. Tibbs was convinced that he could talk Butler into staying. That whole thing turned into a mess. And he ended up uh, being let go halfway into his third season. Now, he had a five-year deal there, too, if I recall correctly. So he was, uh, you know, you know, nobody has to worry where he got his next meal from, but he really went out on a sour note there. And in, and in Chicago, his first year there, they went from 41 wins to 62 wins. And that was the year that Derrick Rose was the most valuable player. But again, and he completed his five years there, but he clashed with management, um, Gar Foreman, uh, John Paxson, uh, Jerry Reinsdorf. And they basically, you know, they fired him after a season in which he won 50 games. Okay. His final year, he won 50 games and he got fired. So with Tibbs, it seems that uh, if he's not, you know, straight with, with his bosses, uh, there's a tendency for friction there. And luckily for him, one of the guys that Leon Rose hired as his top lieutenants in New York is William Worldwide West Wesley, who has had a long time relationship with Tibbs. So it seems that at least from the management coach dynamic, they're starting out in pretty good shape there. But as you said, we'll see how it goes with the players because that's really going to determine his success 
uh, if indeed he has any. Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, the NBA is a star-driven league. They define what happens on the court and what happens within the front office. And while you have good synergy now, let's see what happens maybe two, three years down the road when they do have an uptick next year, and then they eventually plateau because the players end up hating him and his style. So as you can see, Bruce, I'm not a big Tibbs fan. Everybody loves Tibbs. I don't get it. Never understood it. But one guy I think we all do love and we do appreciate is what Lou Williams consistently brings to the NBA. And how about this, Bruce? The reigning sixth man of the year is in quarantine after an excused absence from the bubble. Now, do you think it is a big deal that Lou Williams made a stop at Magic City for some wings? Those better be like the best wings in the history oh, of planet they look Earth. Delicious. They looked absolutely delicious. I will say that. You know, I remember people used to say, hey, you know, I like going to Hooters, but you know, it's because of the wings, you know? So I don't know if Magic City is like kind of Hooters on steroids, so to speak, when it comes to the wings. But I think this really does demonstrate that in 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 Lou Williams's case, and again, Doc Rivers hasn't really said anything publicly that's, you know, kind of ripping into him or anything. But if you're his teammate, all right, he he left the bubble because he went to a funeral in Atlanta for a, um, whether it was a close family friend or someone in his actual family. I can't remember exactly, but it's like, dude, go pay your respects and then get back here. You know, maybe you can, you know, have them airmail you some wings and you pop them in that microwave in your room and you should be okay. To me, the whole thing is just like, what are you thinking? Real lack of judgment. So here's the thing that here's where I sit on this. Lou Williams was going to have to quarantine regardless when he returned to the bubble, right? He was yeah. not taking tests during his absence. So regardless of when he returned to Orlando, he was going to be forced to quarantine. The only reason this is an issue is because of where the wings came from, right? Like, like had you said, had he theoretically gone to a wing stop, a Buffalo Wild Wings and taken pictures of where these wings were from, I don't think there would be outcry for it. I think people would sit there and say, okay, he's in Georgia. He probably wore a mask. He went and got wings and he took pictures of it before he returned to the NBA bubble in Orlando. My issue is that people are making this a story because of where the wings came from. And, you know, for the longest time, NBA players have never been policed about where they go, right? Like they show up, they do their job, they go home at the end of the day, then you go about your life, like, right? Like you can make decisions on your own. Is it the best look for Lou Williams to do this in the midst of a pandemic while the rest of his team is quarantined in Orlando trying to win a title? Probably not. But at the same time, you know, you have a death in the family. And I think sometimes a lot of us, when things like that happen, you want something comforting. And a lot of people turn to food. Maybe Lou Williams just wanted some comfort food, and I'm completely okay with that. In the overall scheme of things, even if he were to miss a couple of games, it probably doesn't make a whole lot of difference because with no home court road uh, disadvantage in the playoffs this year, where the Clippers end up in the standings really doesn't matter a whole heck of a lot. They're going to do what they do. They're, they have other issues, though, in that, you know, Montrez Harrell, you know, hasn't exactly been the picture of health lately. So that is their, you know, pick and roll combo off the bench with Lou and Montrez. So uh, everyone still feels like it's either going to be the Lakers or the Clippers in the finals, uh, Western finals. And I don't think anything that Lou did here is going to alter that dynamic necessarily. But as you said, it's kind of just not a good look. Not so much 
look, he could have went to Chick-fil-A and it would have been like, oh, okay, whatever. But you're right. I mean, the fact that he went to a gentleman's club uh, will put it in less of a favorable light, shall we say. Absolutely. Magic City has some magical wings and are close on this. Do you think Lou Williams is a ranch or blue cheese type of guy? I, I think he would probably be, you know, more of a hot sauce kind of guy. Can you put hot sauce on wings? <laughs> oh, you can, you can put anything on, on wings. I'm not a wings you just douse those in there. <laughs> Me personally, I'm a ranch guy. Now it's time to find out what Derek Bodner of The Athletic thinks of the Sixers chances. All right, it is our pleasure to welcome in Derek Bodner. He's a senior writer covering the Sixers for The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter at Derek Bodner NBA. First off, Derek, thank you so much for taking the time to join both Bruce, Bruce and I. And how are things going? Yeah, it's my pleasure. Things are going uh, going great, getting the NBA back. It's hard to uh, complain about that. I was going to say, when you look at the Sixers team, you know, we're almost three and a half months removed or really four months removed from when games took a hiatus. And it seems like the entire conversation around this Sixers team has really changed in that time. What is the biggest difference you've seen with them early? And granted, they are just scrimmage games, but what have you seen from this team so far? Yeah, well, there's been a number of changes. The biggest change, first of all, Ben Ben Simmons is back healthy. When the season was halted back in March, he had a nerve impingement in his lower back. So he's back healthy. He's healed from that. He looks looks 100%. He looks like Ben Simmons. The other major change, though, is that they have started – elevated Shake Milton, the starting lineup. And not only that, but they have given him pretty much the primary ball handling responsibilities in the half court when he's out there with Ben Simmons. So you have Ben Simmons not only back, but he's playing a much more off ball than we've ever really seen him play at the NBA level. And those are both good because you get one of your star players back and also different because we are watching them basically adjust on the fly to a lineup that they have legitimately never used in a regular season NBA game. So there's a lot going on. You know, I think there's, there's a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot. There's a little more confidence for a team that I think has struggled or at least struggled to meet expectations. So there's a lot of intrigue around the team for sure. Hey, Derek, one of the things that people have always sort of, you know, beaten Ben up over a little bit is his, is his three-point shooting. And it appears that by putting him off the ball a little bit more, it's going to probably position him, you know, to, to get some more, uh, you know, spot up threes. But I was just curious. I mean. How much do you feel the move from getting him out of the point guard spot has to do with his sometimes shaky free throw shooting? I mean, he's a career like 59, 60% free throw shooter. Shake is in the mid 70s, which is, you know, around the league average. Do you believe that was a factor or is that just sort of an incidental thing? I think it's probably more along the lines of they were, they needed another ball handler. Like they had a really unorthodox lineup, especially for 2020 where you had you know, Joel Embiid a post-up center, Al Horford, Tobias Harris, Ben Simmons, just not a whole lot of spacing and a whole lot of ball handling. I think the move was primarily first to get more shooting and more ball handling in that starting lineup to balance it out a little bit more. And also then to you sort of, it's tough to run a, a classic pick and roll with Ben Simmons because he doesn't offer that shooting. He's not a threat to shoot, so everyone goes under that screen. I think they wanted to get that sort of skill set in the starting lineup as well. You know, I think by and large, I'd have to go back and look at the numbers. I think Ben Simmons was shooting over the last couple of months in the mid-60s. I think his his free throw shooting had improved as the season went on. I think their biggest complaint with Ben Simmons in the free throw line is that he doesn't get there enough, that he at times shies away from contact because he knows he struggles at the three-point line or at the the free throw line. So I think their concern more is to, you know, stop avoiding contact 
have the confidence to go to the free throw line than the actual percentages. Because if he gets there a lot and he's making 59, 60, whatever percent, I think they're okay with that. They just want that aggressiveness from him. But I think it's more or less to get another ball handler and perimeter shooter out on the court. Derek, are, are the Sixers looking at these seeding games the right way? You know, because w- when I look at the way that the standings and really the playoffs are going to shake out, the Sixers don't have much to win or lose from these seeding games. And so the fact that they're trying things, whether it's in these scrimmages or when the seeding games do begin, they're going to have a better idea of what they can do moving forward. Is this the right approach for this Sixers team? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think this, like you point out, there's really not a whole lot the Sixers are playing for right now. They've clinched a playoff spot. They've clinched a top six seed in the Eastern Conference. Uh, moving up to, say, a four seed doesn't have any impact over the five seed because there's no, there's no home court. So you can get into a little bit of a debate. Do you want to play Boston or Miami in the first round? Do, more specifically, do you want to avoid Milwaukee in the second round if you do advance? There is some impact there, but there's arguments to be made either way. You know, I think they would have a better chance against Miami in the first round if they did move up to that 4-5 or five, than they would uh, against Boston, but then that would mean that they would have to play Milwaukee in the second round. So there's, you know, there's debates on either side. I think for the most part, their goal over these eight, eight games is to get, like I said, this starting lineup that they're, they're putting out there has legitimately not played a minute all season together. This role that they're playing with Shake Milton being the primary ball handler and, and Ben Simmons being off ball, they've never really played this year. So I think they really want to get up to speed, get those changes so that they're comfortable with them, get the rotations down because that then has impacts later on in the game so that they're playing their best basketball when the playoffs start. I don't think winning or losing is is a primary concern right now or even a secondary concern. It's being comfortable with where they're at when the playoffs do start. While most of the league has sort of gotten away from pounding the ball into the post uh, and gone more with like the stretch fives and the outside three-point shooting, Joel Embiid remains one of the best low post scorers in the entire league. He's a dominant offensive player down low. And uh, as a, he's a big guy that can actually make 80 plus percent from the free throw line. Do, do, do we, do we see the Sixers really trying to exploit him moving forward or how does the Simmons move affect that whole style of play in the half court? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, look, they're not going to move away. And for the most part, Post-play has, has been a dying breed in the NBA. Joel Embiid's sort of like the one person who can make that style of play really efficient at a high usage. Like you said, he gets the free throw line a lot. He makes them when he gets there. They're still going to try to exploit that whenever they can. I think one of the reasons the Sixers have struggled in the second round of the playoffs the last few years is that Joel Embiid has not looked like Joel Embiid the entire time. Two years ago, he had a mask on. I think that hindered him a little bit against Boston. Last year against Marcus Gasol, he, just, he, he was played very tough by Marcus Gasol. That was a good team to stop Embiid's post-play. They need to get regular season Joel Embiid in the postseason if they really want to advance. And they're certainly going to give him a heavy dose of the ball inside, whether that's Shake Milton bringing the ball up or that's Ben Simmons bringing the ball up. Either way, they're going to try to ride Embiid because he's if, they're, if they have a chance to get to the finals, he's going to have to play like an MVP. Is Joel's calf injury uh, a major or a minor concern at this point? It seems like it's a minor concern. You know, he did practice yesterday. Uh, we have not yet received word whether or not he will play. In their final scrimmage, um, it seems like a minor concern, but whenever you're seven foot two and 280 pounds, minor concerns can, there. it's always going to be there in the back of your mind. So it is something to keep an eye on. Derek, when you kind of look at Al Horford, and this is the guy who's in year one of what I believe is a $100 million contract, and this is someone that they signed after being on the Celtics because of some of the struggles that Joel Embiid had with them. 
What, what's the feeling about the way that they plan to use Al Horford going forward? Certainly he's going to be in the rotation. If it's not the starting rotation, what's their plan with him? Yeah, I mean, that's, it, there's sort of two ways to look at that. There's what does that mean for the next couple of weeks or months as the Sixers make a playoff run? And what does that mean for the final three years of, like you said, that four-year, $109 million contract if he gets all of his guaranteed money? And those are two pretty different questions. You know, I think Brett Brown right now, he's in a spot where his future isn't guaranteed with the team. He needs to use Al Horford how he thinks is going to get him wins right now. And and what that means long-term, they can figure that out. But I think, you know, certainly he's going to be the backup center. Um, Brett Brown recently said he wanted to get 38 minutes per night out of Embiid, which seems optimistic. But if that's the case, and there's almost going to have to be some overlap between Embiid and Horford on the court, those two have struggled when they've been playing together. Um, Horford has not provided Embiid the spacing that he needs to be a post-up presence. And Embiid has, and Al Horford has pretty much been a spot-up shooter when he's on a court next to Embiid, which isn't his strength either. So how that exactly works out, I'm not sure. I think we're going to see probably maybe 20 minutes per night of Al Horford. That's going to be, like I said, 10 to maybe 12 minutes with or without Joel Embiid, and then another 8 to 10 minutes alongside of Embiid. And figuring out how to make that pairing work is going to be one of the keys for the Sixers. You know, Al Horford over the years, I always described him during his Atlanta years as just a warrior. He was a guy who would just go out there, never really was concerned about his individual stats, but always did little things to win. And when he was in Boston, he really was one of, if not the leaders of the team, not only on the floor being like the guy calling out defensive signals, but also in the locker room and in practice. Is he one of the few guys that could be a high-profile free agent, big-money guy who, quote-unquote, is being demoted but would have absolutely no problem accepting a role, a lesser role? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. And right now, he has said all the right things. He has been the good teammate. That seems like and, – and look, Al's, Al's tremendous. Like, you would not want a better teammate. If there was someone who was going to accept this role, it would be him. But you wonder at some point, okay, look – You'll 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 deal with it right now during the playoff run. You want to be a good teammate, but when you're looking at it for the next three years, and that being your reality here for the final few years of of, of your career, or at least of your tail end of your prime, are you okay with that? And I think that's a little bit tougher. Of a you know, there's some professional pride I'm sure that Al Horford has. I'm sure that isn't necessarily what he envisioned when he signed here in Philadelphia. I think that's going to be a very interesting question to ask whenever this season, whenever this run does end up coming to a close. Right now, I expect the best out of Al Horford, both as a, a player and as a teammate. It is going to be something to watch when we uh, get a little bit removed from this season. Derek, is there ever a sense, and maybe this is just me from an outsider perspective, and, and I've thought this for a while, and you can completely tell me if I'm wrong on this, but is there a sense that maybe sometimes the Sixers just aren't patient enough with their roster? I, I mean, you look at... One, the Jimmy Butler experience last year and how they tried to almost force everyone together. The Markel Fultz experience, whether or not that was giving him enough time or being almost too patient with him at times. But is there a sense that sometimes this front office and maybe this coaching staff is just so eager almost to a fault? Yeah, I mean, look, you you go back and we're only two years removed from their first playoff run. Two years ago, they had a roster that included Dario Saric and Robert Covington in the starting lineup. Last year, you know, that included Jimmy Butler and JJ Redick. And now you all four of those players are gone. They have they have turned over 40% of their starting lineup two years in a row, virtually their entire bench every season. And all you're really left with is Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons as your mainstays. And there's been very little continuity. And they haven't really gotten any farther to date in the playoffs as a result of that. They don't really have all that many pieces 
that you look at and you say that's definitely going to be a long-term fixture of this team. So yeah, I think they've been too eager to turn the roster over. I think they saw, you know, I think Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons were very good, maybe quicker than they even expected and made them relevant, 50 win relevant, um, Eastern Conference semifinals relevant pretty much right away from the moment they slipped on the court. I think that caused them to sort of hit a a button that maybe they weren't quite ready to hit. Um, you know, I think they've made some short-sighted decisions. I think because of that, they have very little in terms of either certainty going forward or a trade assets or flexibility to move forward. Um, yeah, I think, I think you could certainly say that they were a little bit too eager there. The Sixers had probably among the very best home records in the league, and yep. they were absolutely brutal on the road. Um, does the whole neutral court situation play into their hands and from the standpoint of, all right, they won't have the road disadvantage, but they also won't have the home advantage. How do you think that shakes out for them? No, I mean, that is, I mean, I think they were 29 and two at home and then like 10 and 24 on the road. It was the widest disparity you will maybe ever see. And they beat pretty much anyone you could think at the Wells Fargo Center. They beat um, Milwaukee. They beat both LA teams. They beat, I'm pretty sure, Toronto. They've beaten all the good teams that you would want to see them beat that would give you confidence in their ability to make a playoff run at home. And then you go on the road and they'll, they'll lose to pretty much anybody. Like they could not win in Orlando, for instance, which is, is particularly relevant now. Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. I don't think anybody truly knows. You know, so much watching this team at home and on the road, there was a very different effort level and focus and intensity. And you would like to think that the moment is going to be so big that you won't see that slip, that you will see a closer to a home version of that effort level. I can't tell you that for certain, but that would be the optimistic view of it. Uh, the pessimistic view is that if the team is that, in, that consistently inconsistent in their effort level, then there's a red flag there. And that would be a concern too. Is it, and maybe it's not safe to say, maybe it's the wrong word to use, but is chemistry a big part of that? Is there a chemistry issue with this team at times? You know, I would say, I wouldn't say chemistry issue as in terms of like, maybe there are people who don't get along or there's something, you know, a cancer in the clubhouse. I don't think they dislike each other, but I would go back to what I said every year, 40% of the starting lineup and the entire bench unit is changed over. They just don't have that much shared experience outside of the six or two stars where you would really see that chemistry develop over time. Like chemistry is an organic thing that takes some time to develop. I think it's certainly fair to say that they don't necessarily have that. I mean, just look at chemistry on the court. They just changed, made a massive change with one of their stars, taking the ball out of his hands more than he ever has since he's been in the NBA. There's a whole lot of reasons why I think maybe they don't have quite as much chemistry as a typical title, title contender would have. So, yeah, I think that's a fair way of phrasing it. I just don't think it's like the way we think of chemistry in terms of, of them disliking each other. I'm not sure that's the case. There's just not a, a shared knowledge of exactly where they're going to be and what they can rely on. Derek, uh... Prior to the season, I had the Sixers coming out of the East and uh, playing the Lakers in the NBA Finals in a rematch of the 1980 NBA Finals. Ha ha ha. But uh, and and I felt like, you know, the Sixers really did have the talent to do it. And Brett Brown, who everyone agrees is not only a, a an excellent coach, but one of the nicest and best guys in the NBA, seems like he is permanently on the hot seat. And it, I'm, I'm sure that's still the case. So in your opinion, or from what you've heard dealing with management, if, if you even can answer this, how far do they have to go for him to come back next season? Yeah, I mean, look, if he doesn't get out of the second round for the third year in a row, I'd be very surprised if he comes back. And that's, you know, that's not necessarily saying he doesn't deserve it or it's his fault, but that's just sort of the way it is for life NBA coaches. 
um, especially when you have a front office who, you know, you got to remember this front office that's in place right now who made a lot of controversial uh, decisions last summer. Uh, one of them just got benched for a second round draft pick who's in his second year. But they made a lot of controversial decisions last summer. And also, Brett Brown wasn't their guy. He wasn't. They, didn't, they did not hire Brett Brown. Brett predates everyone in that front office for the most part. So I think if they disappoint, and certainly the expectations were that they would challenge for an Eastern Conference title, if they disappoint, then you know the blame sort of goes downhill. And you know I think a lot of the problems that the Sixers have had in terms of disappointment are in terms of how these pieces have fit. You know, I think the, who, what they have prioritized and what they spent specifically in Al Horford, but also in Tobias Harris, who I think was an overpay, both in terms of the trade and also then the contract. You know, I think, uh, I think that's where the root of their problems lie. But I do think, I mean, this is what we see in the NBA. You only get so long. This is Brett Brown's seventh year. It'll be a third year in a row. He wouldn't have gotten out of the second round. If he doesn't get to at least the conference finals, I do think they make a change. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the Sixers team. And Derek, we'll close with this and I'll ask you this. You mentioned ex- expectations for this team. You know, I think a lot of people had thought that they could be finals contenders, whether that was last year or, or early on this year. You look at them as of now, 39 and 26 as they begin the reseeding games inside the bubble. What would be a good close to the season for this Sixers team? And internally, what is the expectation for the Sixers unit? Yeah, I mean, look, I think a good close, if they, if they get to a conference finals, I think that's a good run. I think Milwaukee's just such a significantly better team. Uh, and certainly their pieces fit better. They've got an MVP player. Um, They're just an overall better team. So I think beating them, getting past them, I think would be an unrealistic expectation. But I think they should have their set set for a conference finals run. I think if this team is playing at its best, I think they can beat you know, Boston and Miami and Toronto or at least compete with them. I think they have a chance against all of those teams. So I think the expectation, a realistic expectation, is getting out of the second round. What happens in the second round, you know, like I said, I think could end up determining Brett Brown's fate. But I think they feel like they can compete and compete for a title. And I think, like I said, they've beaten virtually every good team. So I, I would get why internally they would believe that way. But if you're asking me as an unbiased observer, I look, clearly I think uh, Milwaukee is a better team. And that's where my expectations would stop. Hey, and the best part is this team doesn't have to go on the road anymore, right? We're all playing yeah. neutral site games, so that road record doesn't matter anymore. Yes, very true. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, Derek, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us. This was fantastic. It was good to gain a little bit of insight into what's going on with this Sixers unit and maybe what to expect as seeding games get underway this week. My pleasure. That was dope. <laughs> Special thanks to Derek Bodner for taking time out of his day to talk a little NBA basketball. And Bruce, as we wrap things up here on this show, you know, it's kind of funny. We've spent months talking about what this bubble environment was going to look like, what it could sound like, but it's just nice to have basketball back. I want to get your initial thoughts on the bubble court, the screens that reside around the bubble court, and then the social distancing benches that we have. What have been your thoughts so far on, on what you've watched? My thoughts from what I've seen so far is that I, I really didn't know what to expect. I was thinking kind of a slightly upgraded version of the summer league, but really what it's sort of reminded me more of is the Olympics in that, yes, you've had the big screens to kind to try and present a home court feeling uh, when appropriate. And the social distancing on the bench to me seems kind of, odd that they would do that because they're out there it seems silly to have hard contact basketball right and then the second you step off the court now you're six feet apart 
Like, yeah, the benches are one of the most fun aspects of the NBA, and now I feel like it's taken away. It it is, but the actual playing surface itself definitely is giving me an Olympics vibe. And here's what I mean by that: uh, there's no paint in the paint, right? It's just like squares on the floor. Um, the NBA logo in the center might as well be the Olympic rings. And then when you get past the baselines on either end of the court, there's all this wide open space there. Don't, you don't have all the camera guys lined up on the floor. And that's very much of an Olympic feel to me. The Olympic, you know, they always have a lot of the media like in the mix zone and they don't have as many cameras down low there. So to me, it, it, it's a very professional feeling environment but it almost kind of feels like an Olympic vibe. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I thought the NBA did a fantastic job of adding a unique atmosphere to all of this. And so, and, and the scrimmages, what they've done is for people who have not watched or really listened to some of the ambiance that's going on, like the heat will have heat chants going on during their home games, right? Their home announcer will announce their threes, their free throws, who's checking in, who's out. So there are some semblances of what a home game is for these teams. But then once the seeding games get going, and this is what I'm really interested to see how this works, is for, from the way I understand this, Bruce, is each NBA team is going to have 300 virtual fans that they're going to put up on the screens in attendance so that they can cheer, they can be part of the environment, that you can have some kind of of a home atmosphere, which is what NBA basketball and specifically NBA playoff basketball is all about. So the idea that they're trying their absolute hardest to bring some kind of a home court to these games, I love. And I thought for everything the NBA has had to go through to put together this bubble environment to make sure that it is as sterile and clean and wonderful as a place that they could, I thought they nailed this court for everything that was working against them. Like so many of us in society, the whole pandemic has caused us to think out of the box and to have to be a little bit more creative in what we're doing. And I think you're quite right. Uh, the NBA has done a terrific job of that. But speaking of the physical court, as far as the players that are running up and down on that court, has there anybody that has really made an impression on you in the first several days of action? Is it weird that one of the skinniest players out there has been the one that's really stuck out to me? <laughs> like, like Bull Bull looks like, you, you know, he's fresh out of high school, right? Like you just pluck this guy from the center position of some local high school team and you put him into this bubble atmosphere. But I love watching him and I love watching him succeed. We didn't get to see a lot of this kid last year at Oregon. Uh, I think he played into either the first or second week of December before he started having foot issues and then had to close it, close it down. Couldn't really work out throughout the course of the draft process or draft process and then just tumbled down draft boards last year. The idea that he is out there and we're starting to see flashes of what people thought could have been a top five pick in last summer's NBA draft really succeed is encouraging. And, you know, it goes back to the Nuggets. The Nuggets have never had a problem, whether it's a mid-round lottery selection or a late pick, taking a player that they see that has tremendous upside. And they did that with Bull Bull. And the fact that he's out there succeeding, and Bruce, you're, you're going to enjoy this, but Bull Bull actually went to high school in the Kansas City metro area in Olathe, where I grew up. And so I've been hearing about this kid for years. And I, I know you've known about him for a while too, from his father. Well, you know, his, 
he he's the seven foot two player who's shorter than his dad. Okay, how many seven two people are shorter than their father? Well, his dad, of course, was the late great Manute Bowl, all seven foot six of him, and uh, Manute unfortunately uh, died several years ago. He was in a terrible automobile accident and. Uh, never really was quite right after that. I'm I live in West Hartford, Connecticut, and Manute lived there for a while. And back in my ESPN days, uh, Bill Walton, the great Hall of Famer, used to work with us. And Bill and I would hang out sometimes, you know, go to lunch, whatever. So one day we were at lunch at a very good restaurant in West Hartford Center called Brico, which is still the best restaurant in West Hartford Center. And I'm not getting paid by them or any free meals, but facts are facts. So one day we're having lunch at Brico. And we're walking down LaSalle Road, which is the name of the street that Brico's on. We had lunch and we we're you know, getting a little exercise before we, you know, I was probably dropping him back at his apartment, whatever. So we're walking and I hear this muffled voice in the distance going, boo, boo. And I look around and I look all the way back down to the end of the street. And I said, Bill, <laughs> I think that's Manute Bowl at the other end of the street, and he's calling your name. He's there, whoa, let's go say hello. So we walk down the street, and sure enough, it's Manute Bowl, all seven foot six of him. He had recently been in this car accident, so he was walking with a cane. The cane, I'm six foot one, or at least I was back then. I'm about six foot and a half inch now, beside the point. His cane was taller than I was, okay? His cane was taller than me. So we walk back, and Bill says to Manute, Manute, how did you know it was me? And Manute goes, well, I, I could tell by the way you were walking. <laughs> so it's like two guys, if you ever wanted to feel small, stand next to Bill Walton, who was always listed at 6'11 and three quarters, but I swear to God was taller, and Manute Bowl. That will make you feel small, Aaron. Well, Bruce, now I'm just happy that you know what it's like to be me every single day of the year. So that is wonderful. And also that can kind of reminds me of those little uh, sticks they have at theme parks where it says you must be this tall to ride this ride. And I never quite get to the top of it every single time. All right. On that note, Bruce, you did a fantastic job filling in for our guy Otto today. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. And as always, special thanks to our producer, Scott Turkin, and our editor, Ben Wolfen. Hey, if you have not checked out the rest of our shows, what are you doing? We're bringing you tremendous content every day of the week, Monday through Friday. Monday show, it's always the Mike Wise show. He had on Dave Wall this week, one of the smartest guys in basketball. Tuesday, if you have not checked out what Fanta and Adams are doing on Full Court Press, you really need to. Last week, they had Kevin Willard, head coach of Seton Hall. Wednesdays is always your NBA news and updates right here at Catch and Shoot. Whether it's Otto or Bruce or myself, we're bringing you everything you need to know to stay up to date on the association. Thursday is Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt and her new co-host, King McCord. And Friday is the Pure Hoops podcast with Eric Newman and BJ Armstrong. Hey, everyone. If you like the shows, all that we ask is that you rate and subscribe and if you enjoy what we're doing on social, make sure you share it with all your friends. And I would just like to say thank you to Rob Peterson from The Athletic. Rob is one of the NBA editors there and has been very, very generous in helping guys like Derek Bodner uh, join the show, Joe Barden, uh, Seth Part now a few weeks ago. So, Rob, if you're out there listening, thank you so much. And I would just like to remind everybody that we're not out of the woods with this COVID-19 pandemic. So please keep all the medical professionals and the other frontline essential workers in your thoughts. They're putting it all on the line for us, and they truly are 
today's superheroes. Keep maintaining that social distance, wash your hands, and please wear that mask to protect yourself and others. And also, in our current turbulent times, please keep working for social justice with our fellow citizens of all races and religions. We're all striving for a more inclusive society. So uh, thanks for having me, Aaron. Otto, enjoy your time off. Looking forward to having you back next week. I don't want you to be Wally Pip, and I don't want to be Lou Gehrig. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.